Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Let's get ready. It's showtime, folks. Bradley is my favorite one. Here on BZ has some fun. Say your theories put to test. Won't you call some more? Jay talking. Jay, they're wonderful people. With Bradley Jay. Hey, we're going to nip this in the bud. I don't care what time it is. We're going to go talk this thing out. WBZ News Radio 1030. You are Jay talking. We are live midnight to five and. We're going to start off with Emily Sweeney, who is a reporter who works for the Boston Globe and does much, much more. And there are three basic parts to this. We're going to find out about Emily professionally. We're going to find out about her book, Gangland Boston, a tour through the deadly streets of organized crime, which focuses on early organized crime. And we're going to talk about a future project that concerns the real dropkick Murphy, which... I used to know I used to know about him, and I kind of forgot about him. So I'm going to find out about him again. Emily Sweeney, thank you for coming in. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yes, I'm now. I've known you a long time. Do you have a handle on how long it is? It was I met you at one of those big music festivals at Great Woods, and you were working with a tab. So do you have a handle on how long that might be that I've known you? Uh, yeah, ten years, fifteen years. Yeah, that must have been at least two thousand and one. Oh, oh, yeah. wow. And you were a go-getter at the time. I knew you were going to go far, and you did. Right away, you got a gig with the, with the Boston Globe. Can you talk a little bit about how you managed to get the job, and then after that, how you managed to rise so quickly in the organization and survive and thrive? How did you get that first gig? Oh, man. Well, I love journalism. Uh, I always wanted to be a reporter. And after working for the Tab, I went on to the Daily News Tribune in Waltham, and then the uh, Globe ended up hiring me. And uh, one of the things that uh, they wanted me to do when I got to the Globe was do a big story about mapping out kind of like the landmarks of organized crime in Boston. And we did this thing on Boston.com called Greatest Hits and kind of mapped out all the you know places uh, you know where, where stuff went down. Is this book an extension of that, sort of? It, it is. A, a lot of the bit. research yeah, or yeah. maybe got you interested in it? Yeah. And any hints for people as far as how to excel and thrive in a corporate environment like yours, in a journalist corporate environment? I mean, some people get fired. They shrink the workforce down. How do you survive and thrive and move up when the others don't? Well, you know, I mean, I love what I do. And, you know, going to work is so much fun every day. I work the morning shift, so I'm, I, I'm in at 6 a.m., and, uh, you know, I get sent out to all different assignments and, you know, obviously just doing a good job and like being able to talk to people, being able to, like, you know, get people to talk to me. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't really like the press. I'm not sure why, but. <laughs> uh, That's right. You're a, what the enemy of the state, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> okay. But, uh, 
you know, so just, you know, being um, a, a people person, I think, really helps, you know, being a reporter and, uh, you know, um, just being able to talk to people and find the story. Okay. Now, the, um, the book, Gangland Boston. Can you give me an overview of this one and, and, the, and how it's different from other gang books and other crime books in Boston? Yeah, so this is a, my latest book. Um, it kind of looks at the history of organized crime, and I, I tried to go way back you know, to the beginning of you know, when the mafia first started in Boston and the uh, early Irish gangs and street gangs and just tried to cover things that haven't really been covered before. Right, the North End crime, the, the, we know about the 60s and 70s a lot, but we don't know about yeah. the 20s and 30s and 40s, and you cover 20, you cover 30s and 40s anyway heavily in this book. Yeah, totally. I go back to like even the 1890s. I mean, there's a lot more to organized crime than, you know, Whitey Bulger. Right. So. One one really cool feature of this book is that it has a lot of street addresses. You give the street addresses in the, in the text, and there's also a list of street addresses mentioned, key sites. So one can do, as I have been doing, is going and seeing some of these buildings. There's one on St. Batal, if I can't remember which... Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the buildings uh, in the book are still around, and uh, that that was actually what the publisher wanted me to do. It's supposed to be like a guidebook, um, and really like you know geographically based. Um, so um, yeah, a lot of the buildings are still around. Some aren't. You know, unfortunately, the old West End is gone. Uh, you know, that's where my family actually grew up. Really? Yeah, yeah. My mom's side, um, and so so that's kind of a shame. Obviously, Scully Square is gone. But other, other than that, a lot of the, the places um, that are listed in the book, you know, places where gangsters hung out, where they lived, they're all still there. Now, when, you, when I read about the really old gangs, it feels way different. They had different cars, different weapons, different crimes, different clothes, different slang. They even spoke differently, right? And they had different hair. Oh, yeah. So parted in the middle, <laughs> hair like Shemp a right? lot. So can you talk about some of the, the way that Everything was different at the time, including police procedure. I guess that it was really, really wild west, and the the police have certain procedures in place now. They didn't they didn't have then. They they were wild back then, correct? Oh yeah, it it was kind of like the wild west. I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, right around the turn of the century, people were you know just having automobiles on the road. You know, you don't you think people can't drive now? Imagine back then when people literally were just learning how to drive. And uh, figure out the rules of the and there road. There were still horses on the road at the time. Oh yeah, both and streetcars. Um, so nobody really, nobody carried ID. There were no like driver's licenses, you right. know, photo IDs. Uh, you know, police officers had to rely on the uh, rogues gallery. You know, of mug shots that they mm-hmm. collected. Um, the uh, f- even fingerprints weren't used. Um, you know, up until I, I believe 1906. You know, so I mean, th- they didn't have the forensics that are. So you could available. really get away with it. Exactly. Back then. <laughs> and so people did. <laughs> and the police didn't have the restrictions on use of firearms, et cetera, that they do now. I, as I understand it, they could just shoot people. Yeah. Like, you- and wouldn't have to worry about bystanders. <laughs> they didn't really worry about bystanders. They'd see a bad guy and they'd chase him and start shooting, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> newspaper accounts from back in the 20s, 30s, I mean, Time and time again, you know, if if a suspect didn't stop, you know, it, it was up to the officer. But you know, there were 
reports of shot fired shots fired at at the guys um and there were also reports of like the guys bad guys firing right back uh you know it the book opens with a little anecdote about a police officer who was on uh you know just on patrol and how a, a huge mob it was, it was like right around the turn of the century but mob just like turned on him and like beat the hell out of him so uh yeah officers were in a lot of danger um and I guess everybody was. <laughs> so the clothes were different. They wore these big double-breasted, pinstripey kind of old, old school <laughs> gangster clothes for real, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on what era you t- like, exactly what decade you're talking about. Um, and also, you know, the the Boston cops at one time wore bobby hats. You know, they did. Yeah, 1890, yeah. though, right? Yeah, like that. that's old school. Yeah. Can you kind of relate some of the stories of some of the? characters in the book some of the gangsters or maybe the gangs you can start with the gustin gang i guess tell me about that's a good example of one of these early gangs yeah so the gustin gang they were uh one of the biggest most notorious gangs in boston where are they from southie south boston so that were they an irish gang uh yeah yeah pretty much um and so they're from south boston and they dominated um bootlegging operations uh, on that half of the city um and in 1931, um, and actually, just to give you a little bit of background, so Frankie and Stevie Wallace, they were, a.k.a. Frankie and Stevie Gustin. Yeah. Uh, they were the leaders of the gang, and they were both boxers. Uh, they both boxed. and uh, Boxing was big then, right? Yeah, it was huge. And it was bare knuckle, wasn't it? Uh, you know what? I don't know if it was bare knuckle, but, it. I mean, it was, it was huge, and they had boxing matches all the time. Tons of people went... Stevie Gustin, it turned out, in 1920, I, I found out he actually tried out for the U.S. Olympic team, and he made it. And he went over to Antwerp to compete. And when he got over there, and the ride was hellish going over there because the ship that they were supposed to sail on, all the Olympic athletes, wasn't working. So they had to go on a military ship where they were like literally like you know unloading like corpses off of. So then they board this like terrible like military ship that's not really you know suited yeah. for uh, Olympic athletes. On the way there, they have to train on the ship because it, it's really slow and it takes them a lot longer to get over to Europe. So they have to like run on deck. They literally had javelins attached to string rope and throwing them into the water. The javelin to throwers. practice practicing, yeah. So anyway, it was a very long trip, uh, very bad conditions. By the time so Stevie Gustin gets over there, he never gets to box. The coach kind of demotes him down. To, How come? You know, we're, I'm not sure the reason. Um, you know, maybe just like the coach thought the other kid yeah. in his weight class was better. Maybe he gave attitude. Who what knows? A bummer. Yeah, yeah. So when he came back from the Olympics, angry. you know, I, I think understandably so a little bit. But um, and, and from 1920 on is when his uh, criminal record really uh, grew lengthier. So, so he gave up on the, the boxing thing. Yeah, he, he boxed for a little bit, but then he, he seemed to uh, get into other Is Stevie Gustin the guy that the, the, there was some police when he was little that they, they kind of helped him? Um, yeah, so... They kind of... So there were some people that encouraged him. I thought it was, it was cops. They, uh, yeah, they a lot of... They kind of let him box. The, so, so the Gustins were uh, very politically connected, um, you know, uh, John McCormick, like f- the was like a representative here at the state level, and he went on to become like Speaker of the House. You know, one of the most powerful politicians in the country. 
I mean, he once uh, defended uh, Stevie Guston in court, you know. That is one of his, Yeah. And, uh, Go ahead. Oh, no. So, I mean, they had, a, they had a lot of backing, especially in South Boston. Um, and, you know, residents, you know, would accuse the police of, like, you know, beating up on the Gustins and, you know, being unfair to them. And uh, you, you know. do have a photo of Stevie Gustin here, and it's everything's different about them. The pose that he, he, he makes is a different sort of pose than you see today. And they don't have, they're not shirtless. They wear shirts. It looks like kind of, it's a, almost a one-piece looking thing. Yeah, like a wrestling singlet. Like an sorts. 1890s <laughs> bathing suit kind yeah, of thing. That was the Team USA uniform. Yeah, for 1920. Okay, anything else about the, the Gustins, or do you want to yeah. move on to Joe Lombardo? Yeah, well, so actually Joe Lombardo kind of figures into a, into the Gustin gang. So the Gustin gang, really powerful. They're the Irish gang kind of dominating during the Prohibition days. Um and now, meanwhile, in the North End, you had the Italians, and uh, obviously, <clears throat> um, you know, things came to a head. Uh, and it was December 1931 when uh, Frankie Gustin decided to have a sit down with Joe Lombardo. Joe Lombardo was one of the leaders of the Italian uh, mob, mm -hmm. and he goes over to uh, Hanover Street, and. He brings two guys with him, a guy named Dodo Walsh from Dorchester, and uh, another guy, Tim Coffey. So they, as soon as they go upstairs, a bunch of mobsters come out of nowhere and just cut them down, ambush. I mean, bullets are flying, bullets are flying out of the windows, uh, like it's crazy. Um, it so basically that was like a huge turning point, you know, kind of in the history of organized crime in Boston. Because I mean, the Italians totally stepped up, you know. When when did the Italians start to be a factor, mob wise? Uh, well, you know, I, I tried to find the probably the earliest accounts of um, the mafia being in Boston. I, I found some articles from the Boston Post, like in the eighteen nineties, you know, talking about um, that at the time they estimated that there was like maybe two hundred mafia members in Boston in the eighteen nineties. That's all, it seems like a lot. Yeah, I mean, quite a few. <laughs> Did they live in particular areas, or were they spread all around the suburbs? Was there a hotbed of where they would live? I mean, when we're talking like the the early years, I mean, the North End was a was a big spot, you know. So the, were the Irish gangs in the North End in the early days, or were they separated geographically? Like the Irish people were in in Southie in the. Italians in the North End, or were they intermingled in, initially? Yeah, so, I mean, the, so, the North End was originally settled by Irish, but by the time the we're, we're talking about, like, 1890s, like, mm -hmm. mafia era, I mean, the Italians had definitely, like, you know, kind of settled in, and so you had the Italians in the North End, you had the Irish in Southie, and then you had the West End was a little bit more of a m melting pot. You had, like, you know, Jewish folks, um, you know, he had Italian folks, Irish. It's more of a mix. So, and there's a section on there about Chinatown, which adds another group, another element. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like in Chinatown? There were these Tong wars. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the Tongs they were like social social clubs, and um, you know, the, the some of the two the rival social clubs that were there. I mean, got into some deadly, deadly gun battles in the street. Um, you know. We, this was happening in the early 1900s, and um, unfortunately, 
and for the police would just end up like rounding up like tons of people. You know what I mean? Because they and, couldn't tell them apart. Exactly. Like, or nobody they, had ID. Into the language barrier. So it was really unfair, you know, to, to the uh, to the Chinese Really? So they folks. do mass herds? Yes. And then try yeah. to figure out who did what? Yeah. Yeah, pretty and, much. And was Chinatown the same basic area it is now? Uh, yeah. Beach yeah. Street? And yeah, yeah. And a lot of the buildings are still there, too. In those streets. Now, when you, you uh, write, you have extreme detail. Like, you talk about, just as an example, I'm, like somebody's shoes, right? How, yeah. do you, how do you get that kind of... Detail is that license? Are you taking a sort of literary license, or do you actually is, it's, is there some research somewhere that talked about the shoes? Yeah, yeah, tireless, tireless research. Yeah, <laughs> um, hours and hours and hours, days. Uh, yeah, so trying to find those details. I mean, I dug up from you know newspaper accounts, um, but newspaper accounts you have to take with a grain of salt because you know you can pull up three different articles about the same story and they're all like slightly different. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, so usually court documents are the best. Court so, documents. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, a lot of the quotes and stuff um, about the Gustin gang. Right. Uh, there was a time in 1933 where they actually, uh, a pl police officer came to their hangout on Vinton Street in Selfie and uh, the officer showed up came upstairs, they offered him a drink, right? And so the, the cop was like, yeah, sure. They ended up roofing his drink. And then so he, the, the cop gets... Uh, you know, Sleepy. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. And the next minute, next thing you know, like the guys are like lighting matches in his shoes. And the, you, yeah, totally. And then they throw him down the stairs, then they start kicking him. Tough times. And, yeah, yes, and actually they, they beat him like nearly to to death, um, and then they dropped him off in a, a vacant lot somewhere and just like left him, you know. Uh, so again, they it was rugged times. It, it was brutal. Then. Very, very much so. Emily Sweeney is with us. She works for the Boston Globe, the Great Boston Globe, and one of the cool features of this book is that it, there are addresses listed, significant addresses, key sites they're called. There's a map and everything. It was. Initially, and I guess it's maybe not great to bring it up, but it was going to have a fold-out map, kind of a, almost <laughs> not interactive, but a, a feature that was probably going to be, make it too expensive to publish. But that was the idea, right? Yeah. Well, the, the publisher, that was the plan. They approached me to do the book, um, and you know they said that they really wanted like to be just a complete like map guidebook. There was going to be a cartographer making all these maps, and... Um, and then, and then the, that guy got fired. Uh, or something happened. I don't know. I, I turned in all the maps and all the information, and then um, they ended up not including, you know, the maps. Still, it's awesome. Thank you. Gangland Boston, a deadly a tour through the deadly streets of organized crime. I like the way you write it, too. Now, Thank you. We mentioned that there are these key addresses. There's, uh, let's see, a couple on Tremont Street. What happened on 888 Tremont Street? All right, so 888 Tremont Street. Uh, in the 30s, it was home to a place called the Cotton Club. And it was kind of like this like after-hours place where they had like you know bands play. And uh, uh, King Solomon, his first name was Charlie. Charlie, quote, King, 
unquote Solomon. Yeah. He was a big time kingpin back in the day. Uh-huh. And uh, he owned the Coconut Grove nightclub. Um, and he had interests in other nightclubs and theaters. And uh, the feds kind of called him the Capone of the East. Uh-huh. And in January of 1933, he... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, was indicted, along with some other guys, of like running this multi-million dollar like, alcohol bootlegging operation, you know, uh, where they'd have, like, you know, liquor shipped in and using, like, you know, radio stations, uh, you know, radio frequencies to communicate with the ships, like this very, very elaborate. Very big operation. Huge, huge. So he was under indictment, and soon after that, he ended up getting um, assassinated, pretty much, uh, at the Cotton Club did they, one night. Did people figure he was going to talk? Is that what, what happens? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, you know— it's he was going to sing right right well i guess that was the fear pigeon. and a lot of the other some of the other guys that were indicted were also uh you know knocked off as well um you know some suspected it was just a robbery cuz he had like, apparently a lot of money on him that night at the cotton club and uh but you know given the timing of the indictment and so there were probably tri- other factors at play triple eight Tremont was where the cotton yeah. club was yeah do you happen to know what's there now uh, yeah, so right now I think it's a luxury apartments or condos. <laughs> it's called 888 Tremont. They should, still yeah. call, they should call it Cotton Club Condos. I, that would be cool, seriously. All right, how about 617 Tremont? Yeah, so 617 Tremont is a brownstone in the south end, right? And it looks like any other brownstone, but it was there. that it, That is where only a little bit of the Brinks... The Brinks, you know, the Great Brinks robbery, one of the biggest heists of its time um, when it happened, 1950. Uh, so that ground floor apartment there at 617 Tremont is where they located about $50,000 hidden away um, in a cooler, in kind of like hidden in a, behind a fake wall at the ground level of 617 Tremont. Um, and it was kind of strange how it all happened. Uh, this kid was down in Baltimore, right? And he's, you know, trying to, he's at, at an arcade type place and he hands a guy, you know, a vendor, like this like bill that's clearly falling apart. Like, like it's almost disintegrating the guy's hand. And so the guy he calls a police officer over. Again, we're in Baltimore now, not even Boston. Yep. And, uh, you know, says like, hey, is this like fake or what is this? Like, you know, and so the cop looks at the money and they ended up bringing the kid back to his hotel room, and they find more of this money, which had clearly been like probably buried or you know what I mean. And it was part of the Brinks loot. So he ended up saying, "Oh, I got it from my boss, you know, or, or you know these guys I work with." And they had an office at six one seven Tremont. And so the authorities came in and uh, you know tore apart the place and found about fifty thousand or so of the Brinks loot, and uh, the rest 
remains missing to this day. Do you happen to remember how long after the robbery it was that they found this loot? Like, was it 30 years later? Oh, yeah, just a few years later. Just a few years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and how about an address in the North End? Address in the North End, well, probably the, I'd say the most, you know, important one was the story I was telling you about that crazy shootout between, like, Joe Lombardo and his guys against the Gustin gang. Yeah. That happened at 317 Hanover Street. If you're ever on Hanover Street. I'm on Hanover Street a lot. Oh, hey, look, the Citizens Bank. Yeah. That's the building. If you look up. I Do mean, you know what pr- floor? So it all happened, I believe, on the third floor. Because it'd be cool to look at the window. Oh yeah, yeah. If you so there's a picture of it in the book, and I mean, if you look, I mean, the building looks the same. Obviously, this isn't bank. You know, the ground floor. Just ignore that. Just look up, and um, I mean, it pretty much looks the same. Okay, now you have a new another book you're working on, and this is super interesting as well. By the way, everybody, I gotta tell you. There are a lot of crime books out there, but I particularly liked Gangland Boston by our guest Emily Sweeney. That's why she's here. A tour through the deadly streets of organized crime. It's just different. It's different and better, I guess, I'd have to say. Oh, thanks, man. Now, that makes me look forward to the book about Dropkick Murphy. So we all know the band Dropkick Murphys. Probably pretty clear that they took their name from the original Dropkick Murphy. It would be a weird coincidence if they didn't. Who was Dropkick Murphy? Yeah, so pretty amazing guy. Um, the first time I really thought about, I, you know, growing up, I had heard that there was like a, a real guy named Dropkick Murphy, you know, and but I didn't really know much about him or anything like that. I was just a big fan of the band. Uh, and one day I was out at one of my favorite restaurants out in Acton, and I heard a couple people talking about Dropkick Murphy. So I assumed, oh, they're talking about the band. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, Dropkick Murphy's, like, you know, the farm he owned down the street. And I'm like, oh, no way. And they're like, you know, I was like, where? They're like, oh, about two miles down the road. And so in I drove Act- down there. In I was Acton. Just, yeah, in Acton, Acton, Mass. Um, and so I drove down there and, uh, and started doing some research. And it found out that, you know, um, some of Murphy's children still live in the area. I got in touch with them and started talking to them and, it, you know, learned just about, you know, um, the amazing life that he led. So he was a professional wrestler and uh, he started wrestling in the Great Depression and he wrestled at night and then went to medical school during the day. And uh, he ended up putting himself through medical school that way. And in Acton. I don't know why that surprises me. Yeah, so he was originally from Medford. And um, when he started getting, like, towards the end of his wrestling career, uh, around 1940, he bought a farm in Acton, 80 acres. It was called Bellows Farm. So he made some money wrestling. Oh, yeah, How did, did you make money wrestling? Was it, like, the same as a boxing match? People went to see r- real wrestling? Yeah, so, you know, it, it worked a little bit differently. In a way, it... I mean, a lot of the guys, some of the more costumes and everything. I mean, it was kind of like WWF a little okay. bit. <laughs> um, and but, but they worked under different promoters. And uh, Dropkick Murphy worked f- for several different promoters. And he ended up wrestling kind of all over the country. Um, he worked his way up, you know, and he got, you know, gigs in New York. He went to the West Coast. Um, and he it made a good living doing it. Uh, and that's how he made the money to 
to buy the farm. And so when he bought Billow's farm, he, he continued to wrestle. And around like, you know, uh, probably a couple of years after he bought it is when he turned it into a rehab center for alcoholics, which um, was really cool because there, the demand was there for sure. Uh, the, he did really brisk business and uh, there were always- A rehab center. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't say why? rehab, actually. Detox, detox would probably be more proper. Why did he, you know, he was a dentist. Doctor. A doctor. <laughs> not a, sorry. Why did he be right. a dentist? Why did he open a rehab center? I mean, he's a doctor. He didn't need a job. Was it? Was he formerly an alcoholic or did he have an al- alcoholic brother or friends or anything that you know of? Why? I'm, I'm curious. Was it just a lot of alcoholism in the neighborhood? Yeah, you know, so I, I, I don't think he had any personal issues that, you know, to my knowledge, um, uh, but he knew people that did, and he saw what what happened to them. Uh, and he also tried. He he told this story once of a uh, he was uh, had a wrestling match, and he brought three friends um, or, or maybe acquaintances who were staying off the booze, and they were they were great. And then when they got to the match, they started drinking. And then just seeing them like turn into like you know practically like beating each other up in the stands while he was yeah. trying to beat up a guy in the ring yeah. <laughs> is uh you know he, he he led him on a path like he he wanted to make Bellows Farm into a place where people could get healthy and that included alcoholics and also elite athletes and everyday people he built a, this gigantic gym with like um, state of the art equipment regulation size boxing slash wrestling ring. And he took out an ad in the paper and he said pretty much, you know, anybody who wants to just get in shape, you want to gain muscle, you want to lose weight, come down to my gym and I can, you know, show you how to do it. So it was almost like a health farm. A health farm? Yeah. What was his time period? So the he operated the health farm from like 1940 to 1971. Wow, 31 years. Yeah. Yeah, it started out as a convalescent home, um, but it, w- it was early on, soon after he bought it, is when he started uh, you know, specializing in detoxing alcoholics. Emily has some stories. She's putting a book together about this, which will come out as fast as possible. There is, a, a in the meantime, a Facebook page, right? Uh, yes. Uh, so if you go to facebook.com slash dropkickmurphybook, you got to put Murphy book in there or it will take you to the yeah. band. Yes, which which is fine too. Which, the the dropkick Are you a big fan? Oh, I'm a huge dropkick Murphy's fan. Yeah. Ken Casey, um uh, he's been great. Uh, I interviewed him and he's featured in the book. Um so Did they yeah. become experts on the real dropkick Murphy? Did they did they really take the time to know all about him? I well, would guess they would. Well, you know Ken always said that he always thought it was a great name and he had heard about the place. But he didn't know much about it, you know. And then when they, when the Dropkick Murphy started like playing around at like the Rat and places like that, and then they they started getting bigger. Ken was telling me that like guys would start coming up to them, being like, you know, older guys, like, oh, I stayed at Dropkick Murphy's in 1960 something, yeah, <laughs> you know. And um, so they, they were they'd start they start hearing all these stories. Um, the, you so know, then the they bigger they became. Yeah, well, then I contacted them, and then I, I started, like, telling them more about it. And they also got in touch with the Murphy family, and the, the Murphy family also, you know, told them about their dad and, you know, how 
you know, all about John Dropkick Murphy. So so it's pretty cool how it all turned out. How, oh, by the way, the name, John, Dropkick Murphy. Why Dropkick? So that was a signature move in the ring. Um, you know, there's a video of him wrestling on, on the Facebook page that you should really check out. Uh, he, When he did a dropkick, he would leap up in the air and take both of his feet and pretty much, like, you know, kick somebody in the face and then come down and mo- usually land on his both feet again. I mean, it was something to see. And he did it not just once, not just twice. Like, he would do it, like, he would be flying on the ring and just, yeah. So do you think impressive. that this was, like, like real, more real back then? Like, would a guy start to bleed and everything? You know, it, it's, it was, the matches back then were almost always scripted. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people, you know, sometimes a guy would be like... They make a mistake and get hurt. Yeah, or or a guy would try to hurt the other guy, you know? Right. I mean, sometimes He's that did... some sort of personal beef. Yeah, yeah, sometimes that would happen. And and it was very dangerous. I mean, back then, wrestlers got, you know, a, a lot of broken bones. I mean, it was it was definitely very, you know, had a lot of occupational hazards. So tell me a little bit about where your research took you. Of course, you, you went to the family. Are there a lot of family members? And, and what information did they give you? And where did it send you? Yeah, so I, you know, talking to um, Dropkick Murphy's children was really fascinating because you know they grew up uh, surrounded by, you know, they 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 grew up at, surrounded by a detox center and also an amazing you know gym where all these like famous athletes would come. Um, so that you know they had cool stories about how uh, sometimes Dropkick Murphy would send them out and try to and ask them to. Uh, pick up any liquor bottles that they could find because, you know, patients when they went to Bellows Farm would often on the way up, you know, hide bottles here and there in the stone wall. They would like bury them. They would, you know, hide them in the woods, you know, so they could sneak out and have a drink of alcohol. So, um, so we sent the kids out to look for booze, kind of like an Easter egg hunt, if you will. So the people, did they go there on their, of their own volition? And if they went there on their own, why would they hide booze? You know what I mean? I'm going to go dry out, but I'm going to hide booze. Yeah, no, it's a good, well, I mean, the people that went there were really sick. You know okay. what I mean? And, and they needed, they, they would get medication and have medical supervision there, um, you know, to, to wean off of alcohol. But, I mean, I think they were, the addiction was just so strong that they'd do anything. How much it. alcohol does somebody that's really, I don't know if you know this, because I'm curious. Since you studied this, like when you're seriously an alcoholic, how much do you do you drink? Do, do you know? Yeah, I mean, again, that's a good question, and it probably varies from person to person. I think like the medical, you know, I I, I wouldn't want to, you know. You know what I'll do guess. later on in, in the night? I'll say, hey, have you ever been? Are you now, or have you ever been an alcoholic? And how much did you drink at your worst? I'd be curious. Yeah, well, I think I'll, I mean a lot of the guys who went there probably drank, you know, almost like all day. You know, All or I mean, time. every you know, or they would uh, you know go on benders, you know, maybe not come home, okay. that type of thing. Is the gym still there? Is there any of the facilities still intact? Yeah. So the big red barn that was like kind of the centerpiece of the uh, of the farm is still there. Um, you know, when guys would get checked in, they would be issued a pair of uh, red kind of like pajama type outfits, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there was a purpose to this because that way if they wandered off, you know, the cops, if they see, you know, 
anybody wandering around with uh, red pajamas on, you know, they red know. Red pajamas? You mean like a union suit kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. You know, just like a kind of like a, you know, hospital pants and like a white top. But uh, that was like the standard issue uniform that was given to everybody. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, and the, the guys were free to go if they wanted to. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like they were like locked up or anything. You know, they, they could totally leave on their free will. Um, but occasionally they would try to like sometimes sneak away. Like there was this one time Dropkick Murphy had like a stable with, with a horse. And uh, this one enterprising patient, he hopped on the horse uh, with no pants on. To try to get away? And just, yeah, and he galloped down apparently to uh, the nearest package store and- He made it? He went to, he made it to the package store? Yeah, so so then- With no pants? Yes, and so the- That's a guy who really, 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 really wants a drink, that guy. The, the, the package, the, the guy behind the counter at the, the liquor store, he looks up and, you know, sees this guy and he, you know, he calls up Dropkick and he's like, you know, I think one of your guys is here. I you think know, so. <laughs> practically in his birthday suit. And, um, you know, Dropkick Murphy jumped in his car and like, you know, grabbed him, corralled him. <laughs> so you're in the process of trying to get it published. The publishing process is interesting, if you don't mind sharing. Oh, yeah. Can, can you share like what you go through to get it published? Well, so the, the first two books that I did, I was approached by the publishers. Um, I, my first book was called Boston Organized Crime, and that came out in 2012. And uh, again, the publisher approached me and asked me to do it, and I kind of you know judged, okay, do I have time to do this? You know, and I, you know, busted it out probably in the span of a year or so. Quick. Yeah. Okay. And uh, same with Gangland Boston. The publisher approached me from Lions Press, asked me to do it. Uh, Dropkick Murphy has been like a labor of love of mine for the past like, well, probably like five years or so. I've been working on it and doing research. And, uh, you know, hopefully I'll have some good news soon. So I'm in touch with a major publisher who seems interested. It all takes very a long time, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, book publishing industry is uh, is pretty tough, you know. You have to wait months for an answer. We'll get back to you, right? Yeah, you know, it, de it depends. And sometimes they move fast, too. They're like, suddenly, I got offered to do, like, a, a Whitey Bulger book, and they're like, we need it in 30 days. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I, no? I turned it down. You yeah, know what I mean? It would, be, it would be junky. Yeah, so. In 30 days. You know. It, we need a Whitey Bulger book in 30 days. Why did they need it so quickly? Uh, because it was right around the time he he passed away. Oh right. Yeah. So, so you know, it it all depends on the project, but it, it's a tough industry. But I know this book will be great once it comes out. And, okay. Uh, yeah. So you have two. Uh, I want you to plug your column. Okay. Oh yeah. So for the Globe, every Sunday I write a column called Blotter Tales, and that's like blotter, as in like police blotter, like police log. And what it is, it's like a compilation of the craziest, funniest po police log items. And like incidents that I can find. Yeah, I should follow them closely because oh, it's wicked be good. Wicked good. Oh yeah. And you have two websites. I mean, two Facebook pages. Can you? You told up. You talked about one of them. You can talk about both. Okay. Yeah. So um, I put a bunch of organized crime photos and stuff up on Facebook.com/slash Boston Organized Crime. That's the page. And uh, yeah, I, I post a bunch of photos, mug shots, crime scenes. Uh, and information from like the books and then also the other page is for the Dropkick Murphy book okay so thank you Emily Sweeney Gangland Boston a tour 
through the deadly streets of organized crime with lots of addresses to buildings that still exist. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. That was another Jay Talking Podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to the Jay Talking Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ Boston's News Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.